0: Hello again, literati listeners, I'm your host, Timothy Petkovic, and this is BookSla, less problematically subtitled as the Hong Kong Book Club. Today's focus, Fool Me Twice, Confessions of a Perpetual Internet Dating Neophyte, published by Hasmark Services Publishing, 2018. The book is a confessional memoir from author Jules Hannaford, an Australian expat from Adelaide, Wattle Vale, to be Google Maps precise, who's lived in Hong Kong. 20 years. Now, Haniford is a bit of a Renaissance woman. A single mother, teacher, host to the show Hong Kong Confidential, ranked by Tatler as one of the top five local podcasts, and her own adaptation of Fool Me Twice as a true crime pod series went viral in 2019, scoring her and her daughter Zara a nomination for the internet's highest accolade, a Webby Award, in the best writing category, no less.
1: You meet someone online, and there's this instant connection. It's amazing how much the two of you just seem to click. They live somewhere far away, and there's some plausible reason they can't travel to meet you. They tell you they're in love with you, and you feel optimistic for the first time in a long time. They have a successful career, yet somehow they need money from you to solve a short-term problem, always with the promise of paying you back. Time goes on and they need more money, more urgently. You've started to see the cracks and begin to wonder whether they've been lying this whole time. All of a sudden it hits you. You've been scammed. Fool Me Twice is the story of my mother, Jules Hannaford, a woman who was drawn into the dangerous world of sweetheart scams. After a trip overseas to meet a stranger, a dangerous altercation in a Manchester hotel room, and thousands of pounds lost for good, she's here to tell her story. For Me Twice, a true crime podcast, will be available on all podcast platforms in late 2019.
0: Now, just before we begin, for those who don't know their online lingo, a sweetheart scam is catfishing with a romantic hook. And it's big business. According to journalist Clifford Lowe at South China Morning Post, COVID-19 has seen an explosion... In just the first couple months of this year, nearly 270 Hong Kongers were tricked out of a total of 10.5 million US dollars. And it's not just a pandemic problem. Hong Kong's biggest ever victim of an online romance scam was in 2018, a businesswoman duped out of 23 million USD. Personalising these statistics, putting a face to the figures, get ready for a great episode with Jules Hannaford. No lie. Now my usual instinct when I'm talking about a book is to kind of crunch through it chronologically. Can't be doing Christopher Nolan-style time-hopping. But this week, I think we have to start at the end by acknowledging the phenomenal success that you've had with your podcast adaptation of For Me Twice. Why should our audience read the book when they can, and might have already, binged the series first?
2: Well, that's a great question because they're actually really quite different. Even though the crux of the story with Truman and the scam are the same, the book's got a lot more about my day-to-day life, my childhood. It's got more about different little minor scams that I was caught in before the big scam with Truman. And it also has a whole lot about what I've learned since and online dating safety tips, how to date carefully, how to get out of emergency situations and sort of a bit of a self-reflection part at the end podcast is quite different because it has little scam stories from other people in every episode, a lot of experts coming in talking about scams as well. So it's great. You can enjoy both for exactly different reasons.
0: And did that broader focus to the podcast allow for some distance or were there any creative differences between you and your daughter Zara? And if so, what's that like when your project partner is someone so close to you?
2: It was quite an experience and yes, we did have some creative conflict and she was often right, (laughs) but I'm the one driving the production. Sometimes we had to agree to disagree. But generally, she was able to convince me of why we should do things a certain way. And she really did direct the podcast. And the brilliant thing was she did the final edit on the book. So she knew the story really well. So when it came to writing the podcast, she kind of came up with the structure and the way that it would go. And I would bring in my ideas and extra guests and the extra stories. And we were able to compromise quite well. But when it came down to it, I was the boss. but then she really was the creative boss.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And what was the kind of initial inspiration for that to join forces, I guess, by sharing the story with your daughter?
2: Well... I needed her to edit the book. It wasn't in a place to be published and I had a deadline. She has a master's in writing for performance and publications. So I knew that she would be the right person to do it. For a very fast final edit. And she did an amazing job. And the book's won awards as well. It's won the Nonfiction Authors Association Award in the USA in 2019. And it's won a Silver Ippie Award in 2020. Without Zara, those awards would not have been possible. I'm absolutely sure. And then I wanted to do the podcast and I asked her if she would help me write it. And it was actually her idea to come on board as a narrator, looking at the psychology of gullibility. And now she has a couple of degrees in psychology as well. She was able to bring all of her skills and talents into one place. And actually, I've just posted on Facebook now, we've just won a W3 award in New York for the podcast as well today. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, we've won a silver award for best writing and a silver award for best sound design. It's amazing. It's doing really, really well. And it's down to Zara. It really is. I mean, I nearly got killed, so I got the story. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well, let's turn to that written story now, because the thing that will probably strike any reader from the get go is how you really do turn yourself into an open book. We start first page with your first memory and I know you've mentioned now Zara's psychology degrees, but it seemed to me in these earlier sections that you were sort of psychoanalyzing yourself, tracing a tendency towards, I don't want to use any labels, but love addiction perhaps, right back to your childhood. And it's surprising because in many ways, your upbringing was idyllic and lovely and loving. Could you unpick this paradox a bit for our listeners? Painting a general picture of your childhood as well as some of those outlying dark moments and insecurities that foreshadowed or even contributed to your sweetheart scam down the line.
2: I think I, think I had a lot of crushes when I was younger and they were, I was, there was always this unrequited love and I couldn't find what I was looking for. All through my life, there's been this sort of story of me having lots of friends, lots of success, a great career. Even as a child, I was doing well at school, good at sport, lots of friends, all of that. But I was never able to really get a partner who would really love or care about me. And in actual fact, even though I I got married and had my daughter, I don't know that he really loved me. And I don't know that I've ever actually been loved. And it's just been a bit of a theme for my whole life that I've been on my own. And it's made me very independent and very driven and very career minded and very capable and great in an emergency and good at fixing things around the house and (laughs) paying bills and being organized, all of these things. But there's definitely been one thing missing in my life. So I don't know why that's happened to me. It's something that I've always questioned, but I kind of, I just think that it's just the way the cards have fallen for me
0: but I guess like on the other hand as well as sort of bad luck maybe you also spoke about though the near beheading on the motorbike oh, yeah. and I, I I found that fascinating because I was thinking oh no like it's the same instinct even as a little girl can you explain <laughs> for our listeners what I'm talking about
2: yeah yeah that's brilliant I'd even forgotten I'd put that in the book So yeah this <laughs> friend of mine who actually became a very famous Australian footballer <laughs> he, um, he yeah he. I was riding on the back of his motorbike and he was just driving around this dam and then all of a sudden he just ducked and I just ducked with him and I nearly could have had my head chopped off if I didn't go with him because we went under this wire and that's kind of symbolic of the fact that I am very good at coping in emergency situations and getting myself out of trouble. So I was able to do it as a young girl. And then certainly during the scam, I was able to do it again. And I I was able to survive what could have been a potentially fatal encounter. So yeah, so there is a link there, which I hadn't even made. So thank you for making that. I also want
0: to ask about the effects. The school bully called Alan, who would sexually assault you through groping and suggestive comments, I also found it interesting to ponder how an act like that would be handled today and its consequences. Because I think a boy could very well be removed from school for behaviour like that. But on the other hand, your response to your mum of asking, Am I a boy? Like nowadays, that could literally start an identity crisis.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, are you transgender? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But in actual fact, I was just like, like, where are my boobs and why am I not developing? Like, am I a boy and have I missed something? <laughs> yeah. So it definitely wasn't a gender crisis or me questioning my gender. It was really just like, what the hell? Why is this taking so long? And everyone else has developed and I'm 15. Now, interestingly, whether my late development had any impact on the way that I was viewed by boys and the fact that I couldn't get a boyfriend and if that's had any psychological impact on me in the future, I don't know because girls do develop a lot younger, but I was nearly 16 before I got my period and wore bras. So that might've had something to do with it. And the boy, Alan, he was certainly drawing attention to it by bullying me and making up those jokes and calling me names and trying to feel where my bra wasn't because I didn't need one and that would have been dealt differently today because there would have been conversations around that with parents and with school teachers which weren't happening when I was a kid in the 70s I didn't know that it was completely inappropriate that I could reach out and get help or support so I just had to suck it up but in actual fact at the time I don't think it impacted me that greatly like I wasn't avoiding school or home crying about it but it was distressing in the moment and embarrassing okay okay
0: and then in terms of maybe a bigger psychological impact, now I've got to do a disclaimer because I am definitely projecting from my own biases towards like blaming any psychological defects on a person's parents. That's just, that's just the way I roll. <laughs>
2: yeah. You, you wouldn't be the lone ranger there. <laughs> yeah.
0: But you, you described, for example, an incident where a neighborhood boy tried to flirt with you by playing a game of chicken and crashing his car into yours. Oh yeah, And you say that your dad's response was really unexpected because instead of being angry about the wrecked car, he was out of his mind, he was fretting. And you say, quote, I was shocked. Who was this man and where was my dad? I had not expected this compassionate, loving, and understanding approach, even though that is really what he's like deep down. End quote. So I guess the question is, What was your dad like in daily life? Why was his reaction a surprise? And do you think that had maybe a bearing on future choices of romantic relationships even?
2: So dad was pretty stern and he was a bit like the town sheriff, even though that's an American thing. He was very sensible and pragmatic and fair and didn't get super angry or anything but if he was cross he knew it but it was all reasonable but I just knew that he valued things like his car so much that I felt that I would just be in massive crap and the fact that he was just so worried about me was a shock because I hadn't really seen that side of him although of course I would have especially when I was really little as a little girl but I don't really remember it just you know seeing how he treated people in the community and as a farmer and he was very Aussie bloke, get on with it. Not soft and squishy, but just pragmatic and straightforward. It was just nice to see that side. And I, I don't know whether that's had any impact on the future. I wonder whether in a way he's such a great man, maybe on a subconscious level, I haven't been able to find that. And maybe when I was younger, I was looking for the opposite of that, going for the bad boys. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Let's call Freud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it's, it's also interesting though, because I'm thinking, even if my reading was like completely wrong or, or completely the opposite, when you write a memoir, opening everyone around you up to a certain level of that kind of scrutiny, I know you say the acknowledgements, how supportive your friends and family were, and they even let you use their real names, but were you conscious while you're writing of wanting to protect them, not offend people?
2: Um... Yeah, I guess I was sort of, oh no, actually I don't think I really did worry that much about offending or upsetting them, but they're portrayed in a pretty good light. The agent that I was working with initially, she did point out that I had a lot nicer anecdotes and stories about my dad than my mum, but it was nice to have that pointed out to me. So I was able to bring in some more stories about her and how she impacted my childhood as well in a positive way. They were both great parents. I had a fantastic childhood. I was really lucky.
0: And one of the ways your mum put a very positive stamp on your life, of course, was sending you to an all-girls boarding school for the latter years.
2: I had a ball. I absolutely loved it and got in trouble for drinking and jumped out of windows with 60 cents in my hand. I was going to run to a payphone because there are no mobile phones in those days to call my mum to get her to come and help me because I was drunk. So we obviously were close enough that I wasn't worried (laughs) about telling her I'd got pissed at the school dance. We just had so much fun and I was very independent and I really shone. I grew into myself at boarding school because I was outstanding at sport. I was a great leader. I made loads of friends. I just was able to flourish in those two years that I was there and it was a tradition in the family that the boys went to boarding school because I'm sixth generation Australian and my daughter is seventh so in the generations before it was a tradition the boys went my mum was like well no if the boys are going the girls are going I think it really did instill in me a sense of adventure and risk-taking which I've then taken forward to great extremes at times but I don't think that's such a bad thing because I have had such a fantastic life
0: another fantastic anecdote i love from your school years was your assembly times like playing popcorn by moving with up.
2: a pen on my teeth yeah it's a, it's a massive talent <laughs> <laughs> if i had a pen i could do it for you now
1: well that was what, that was what i was gonna ask because <laughs> i'd love i'd love to, I'd love to hear oh, this rendition. yeah i've
2: got a pencil i don't think it'll work so well with a pencil but let me try <laughs> There you go (laughs) Thank you, it works much better with a pen
0: That sort of also made me wonder whether, did you ever debate doing a kind of more comic tone? I know you say that you might have missed your calling to work in comedy, and so I was thinking
2: (laughs) Yeah um, I didn't because I think that scamming is such a serious issue, but it was really nice in the memoir to be able to bring in my sense of comedy, in, especially in my childhood and with some of the stories and even the kind of irreverence that I had when I was looking at myself and the way that I acted. I think I was able to bring my comedic voice more into the memoir than I did in the podcast. But overall, I think my goal was to really educate people about scams. So I wanted to take it quite seriously. And the fact was that I could have been killed. So it is a really serious issue. But of course, we can still learn a lot from laughing at ourselves as well. I don't think there's any harm in humour, but I mean, my daughter was writing the podcast and she's just not as funny as me. <laughs> but anyway, no, I think it just worked out perfectly the way it is. <laughs>
0: and what's ironic, as you highlight in the book, is that you went from this progressively feminist high school into a pretty toxic first serious relationship, one that developed into a marriage, in fact. Could you explain for our listeners the dynamic of your relationship with Goran? How did you two meet and when did things start to deteriorate?
2: So I used to work in a nightclub called Limbo and he worked in another club around the corner in Hindley Street and we met that way. And I think, I mean, I was a starry-eyed 19-year-old, but back in those days, we were so young and naive. So there's this guy nine years older than me giving me all this attention and I was just enamored by him and he seemed very cool and hip and he had his long hair and he was a handsome Yugoslavian guy. And once you develop feelings with somebody, when the domestic violence or the family violence, as they call it now, comes into play, it's really difficult because you start to second guess yourself. You're gaslighted. There's coercive control. There's all of these factors that make it very hard for you to get out of the situation. And at the end of the day, you feel like you love this person as well and you want to change them. And it's really very scary to think about leaving, especially when you have a 10 month old baby. It was everything from telling me I was stupid and I wouldn't amount to anything, to smashing holes in the wall down the side of my head while I was holding the baby. I knew he was nuts, but I didn't feel that he was completely a dangerous to my life or my child's life. But it was really down to my mum again. She'd witnessed some of the violence when he had cracked the shits, as we were saying in Australia. (laughs) And um, so she encouraged me to leave. And without that encouragement and permission, when I was 23 or four, I probably wouldn't have left. So they came down and helped me pack everything up and took me and my 10-month old baby around to my uncle's and I moved in there
0: kind of keeping with the theme of parental protectiveness it was then also your mum I believe who told you about a job opportunity in Hong Kong.
2: The first time she told me I was like why would I want to go to a country where I'd be the tallest person leave me alone. So that was when my daughter was about eight. I'm six foot tall. And then two years later, she rang me up again and said, these jobs are here. And this time I kind of thought, oh, okay, maybe I should check it out. Maybe there's something in this. Maybe, you know, this could be an opportunity to find love. Like, I think that's really why I was leaving. But anyway, I came over here and had just the same disasters as I've always had, but I've had a fantastic career and a wonderful life and I love living in Hong Kong it's afforded my daughter so many opportunities it was really a brilliant move I'm so glad yeah, that I did it yeah definitely
0: but I didn't realize that romantic love was a motivation for Hong Kong mm,
2: yeah I might not have put that in the book I don't know if I put that in there you go I'm giving you a little scoop <laughs>
0: <laughs> well we laugh but it really is a key dating criteria for you so Hard in honkers.
2: Yes, and it could be a key factor of why I am still single. I hate feeling overly big or overly masculine. I want somebody bigger than me. That cuts out about 95% of the entire world's population. <laughs> so no wonder I'm single. <laughs>
0: And is it like a sexual chemistry thing? or I
2: think it's more like an innate protection caveman kind of you husband, me, wife. <laughs> <laughs> not that I need protection, I can look after myself clearly.
0: Well, actually, on the theme of nature, nurture, innate or not, you write about an anecdote where you went to see a psychic in your early 20s. And she prophesied that you would always have the so-called buddy curse of basically being friend zoned by guys. I know you describe yourself as a spiritual atheist. So I was wondering to what extent you think this augury might have been a self-fulfilling prophecy for you.
2: Well, when I saw The Psychic, this was in my early 20s. I had no plans of travelling anywhere. She said, you're going to live on an island surrounded by water, which is amazing because I live on Lama Island in Hong Kong. And then she said, you're going to have a lot of friends in your life and you're going to be surrounded by men, but you're always going to be alone. It was very prophetic, but I haven't kind of orchestrated that.
0: And then turning to that scam, you met Truman Online in November 2010 and kind of from the off there were some warning signs.
2: He wouldn't video cam with me. He had a convoluted story about his childhood which tried to explain away his accent which in hindsight I could see was West African with maybe a bit of a British twang but he sort of explained that away that he was adopted and then he went to Canada to boarding school because he was a troubled kid and that's why he had this unusual accent. Other red flags were just the way that he would love bomb me really early before we'd even met and but I still wanted to see where the relationship could go because he was saying a lot of things that I wanted to hear. But then he was very adept at reeling me back in. I just was so desperate for love. It was easy to push it away and have this, you know, fantasy in my head.
0: Ironically for him, it was a lot more real than he would have bargained for because...
2: Yes, I turned up in England. I don't think he expected that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Whoopsie, hello, I'm here. Yeah, so I think that set things in motion for it to all go particularly wrong.
0: I don't want to give the whole story away for any potential listeners to fool Me Twice. So maybe this is a good time to segue from your unexpected presence in Manchester to a kind of absence in the topic of shame. This is a bit contrived, but I need me a link. And I really like how the title "Fool Me Twice leaves out the shame on me part, because shame seems like the great unspoken that festers upon silence.
2: Mm, absolutely. I was terribly ashamed that I was so foolish. You know, I'm a teacher, I'm educated. But the thing that I've learned through doing the book and the podcast is that this kind of thing can happen to anybody. Lawyers, police people, doctors, educators, anybody can get scammed from any walk of life. That made it easier for me to forgive myself a little bit. So it was cathartic. But overall, I did feel very, very foolish and very ashamed for the choices that I'd made and the position that I'd put myself in.
0: And our listeners won't know this, more rats that they are. Our entire talk has been conducted at school from your end today. I think the book is particularly brave because you are a teacher. Have students of yours read it? Would you want them to?
2: I think some of the senior kids might have a few. I think it's fine for older kids. There's a lot to learn from it. I have had loads of support from my principal and the organisation I work for, which is really wonderful. I'm very, very lucky. Good.
0: And on the topic of support, or in this case, perhaps the lack thereof, One noteworthy thing from the podcast adaptation is that For Me Twice ends each episode by advising listeners who've been victims of sweetheart scams to contact the police. And yet, from the stories told on the show, police rarely seem to hold scammers to account, including with your own scammer, Truman.
2: Yeah, look, I think it's really difficult to trace them or track them. There's not so much that you can do. I don't think the police really can help. My situation's very different because I met my scammer. So I was able to give them his address and give them many more details than many people have of their scammers. So generally the police can't trace the scammer because there's some guy in in a cafe somewhere on the other side of the world who's masquerading to be somebody completely different and you don't really have any concrete information about them at all. But don't forget, this is the early days of scamming 10 years ago. So I think that there might be a bit of a different response and people will take it much more seriously and there are cyber crimes units and there are ways of tracking and checking what people are doing online and maybe tracing people and the technology is much better so I think things might be different and I think just getting support from the police is it won't hurt
0: and not to hurt the themes of self-sufficiency and self-empowerment but <laughs> has your love life improved since for me twice
2: yeah, pretty much not. <laughs> not. <laughs> no, it hasn't. But I'm obviously way more careful and I wouldn't put myself in any dangerous situations. I was seeing a guy who I'd met on Tinder He lives in the US and he's a lovely guy. And we saw each other off and on a few times over a few years and we're still good friends now. So from that point of view, yes, but I don't really have anyone special in my life. But I'm not that bothered by it now. I'm not searching for it like I used to. I think that's being post-menopausal I don't have the same sort of hormonal desires I'm happy to be on my own and I'm not really searching for it like I was so it's fine <laughs> but no nothing's really changed <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay well then rating it back from romance I want to end with some questions about kind of creative stuff love of art season two of Fool Me Twice? Oh, yeah. What an advance.
2: (laughs) So it's a really exciting story about a diamond scam in Hong Kong. There are loads of different twists and turns. It's going to be absolutely amazing. My daughter's writing it now. It'll be released in 2021. And that's all I'm going to say about it. So subscribe to Fool Me Twice and it will drop in the new year at some point. But it's going to be fantastic. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Me too. Well, Jules Hannaford, author of Fool Me Twice, Thank you very much for chatting.
2: Thank you, Timothy. It's been lovely. Thanks for having me on your show.